Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host, Gemma, and I am continuing my book review of Honeybee Democracy by Thomas Seeley. And this episode, we're going to be diving deep into chapter five. Once we are finished with this chapter, we will be officially halfway through the book. So I'm quite looking forward to getting this information out there. As always, I'm going to do some homestead updates before I get into the chapter. So right off the top, I want to talk about my sick chicken. I always seem to have at least one. And uh, right now, my sick chicken is Agnes. She's my last of the very dark red hens. And she lives in the, the main flock. Now, Agnes has been acting a little off every now and then since winter started she would seem kind of quiet like she maybe wasn't as enthusiastic about food as before so I'd check her out she'd seem okay and then she'd bounce back she'd be right back out to digging around hanging out with the rooster she's one of his favorites and she does seem to like him in return so I've just sort of been generally keeping an eye on her and assuming that this sort of moodiness was really just due to the terrible winter that we've been having it's been very cold we've had a lot of snow we had some ice just not very fun especially if you're a little chicken well earlier last week I noticed that she looked especially droopy and she had that look about her that I'm really starting to learn is not a good sign in chickens so I scooped up the little sweetie and what I noticed was that she had an empty crop and I could feel her breastbone very clearly, so I think she's been losing weight, but her lower stomach felt full, and it felt relatively hard as well. So my first thought was that she had something called egg yolk peritonitis, which is basically when a chicken starts laying the shellless eggs into their abdominal cavity. So instead of moving through the reproductive tract normally, gaining a shell and then being laid it just goes into her abdominal cavity and it uh, builds up the material now some of you might remember that this is actually what killed my one of my special needs girls bubbles I found her when she sadly had advanced quite far in this disease and we had to have her euthanized and when I did a necropsy I couldn't believe how much material had built up and solidified in her it looked incredibly painful So I scoop up Agnes and I think to myself, okay, I'm going to take her to the vet, but the chances are that she won't be coming home with me. Chances are I'm going to have to let her go. So I get her to the vet and I was very surprised. My vet told me that it wasn't solid what he could feel. It was fluid. And he gave me some options. So one of the options was basically we do everything. You know, we do x-rays and an ultrasound and all kinds of blood work and stuff that's going to cost me, you know, a small fortune. Or what we could do is we could just at the bare minimum do an ultrasound because when you find fluid in the abdomen, the issue is where is it coming from and or what caused it. So one of the causes for fluid buildup like this could be liver disease or some kind of um, tumour on the liver. And the other thing could be heart disease. Um, I mentioned on a... Rep- on a um, previous episode about chicken disorders ascites which is um it's like a heart failure that leads to build up of fluid so i said okay let's go ahead we did the uh ultrasound 
And the good news was that her liver and her heart are perfectly healthy and none of the other organs that he could see on the ultrasound looked abnormal. So he ended up draining the fluid and quite a lot came out of her. I can't remember the exact cc's of it but it was a lot and looking at the fluid the good news was that there was no sign of eggs so there was no sign of egg yolks or egg whites in the fluid so it wasn't egg peritonitis and this means that we ended up leaning towards the idea that it was a reproductive tract infection causing this fluid buildup And that meant that we could probably treat it with strong anti-inflammatories and a strong course of antibiotics. So I was able to take her home the same day. I had to get her set up in the house. So my chicken hospital, aka my downstairs bathroom, is now being taken up with Agnes and her little crate and everything that she needs in there. Uh, She's been getting medications twice a day. I made the mistake of asking for them in a fluid suspension, or rather I was given the option of pills or the fluid suspension. I got the fluid suspension and I wish I hadn't. When I give pills to a chicken, I crush the pills, add a very, very small amount of liquid, and then I can easily syringe feed it. When you get the fluid suspension, you always end up with a lot more liquid. So trying to get what amounts to almost six milliliters of fluid of medications into this chicken twice a day has been a freaking nightmare. But, you know, we're muddling along. Now, as of today, I'm recording this on Valentine's Day, actually. Happy Valentine's! Um... <laughs> She is doing pretty good. Uh, There's still a little bit of fluid I can feel in her abdomen, but not as much. She is eating, but not quite as much as I want her to. I gave her a boiled egg today and her crop actually feels relatively full for the first time since we started treatment. She is brighter. She has been calling for her flock, which is pretty sad. But uh, yeah, she just, she's okay. I'm just not, a hundred percent sure she's responding as quickly as I would like it's mainly just the food issue now I feel like overall the fact that she didn't just immediately fill back up with fluid is a really good sign but I don't like the fact that her crop it really only feels about a quarter or a half full every day I really want to have to eat get back to eating normally and her medication will be finished middle of next week at which point I will have to start acclimating her to the cooler weather before I can put her outside. My concern is that if I take her from my nice warm house and just immediately put her outside into the very cold temperatures that the shock will kill her. So much like you harden plants I'm going to be trying to harden my chicken sometime next week by moving her into cooler and cooler rooms until I feel like it's safe to put her outside. So watch this space. Hopefully when I am back in two weeks, I will have good news there. As for the rest of the chickens, they are actually muddling along extremely well considering the terrible weather that we've been having. This is the first time I have found songbirds like sparrows, cardinals, grackles and a number of other smaller birds getting into the chicken run. 
I think what's happened is that the smaller birds have learned that the chicken wire is large enough for them to squeeze through and that in the run they have access to chicken food and anything that the chickens didn't get from when I put out you know oatmeal or scratch or whatever so I've been finding them in the run pretty much every day sometimes a larger bird gets in like the grackle and then freaks out and somehow can't find their way back out and I've had to sort of open the run door wide and then gently shoo them out. Uh, This morning I actually found a sparrow in the special needs coop, that's a first one, managed to get that little one out as well. And then just to sort of add to the fun of winter, uh, the door to the run started falling apart. Um, So I was out there in freezing cold temperatures with my drill and screws trying to repair it and during this I managed to lose a drill bit somewhere in the snow so fingers crossed in the spring it might appear but right now it's gone forever. Uh, This really has made me realise that I need to go over the runs and the chicken coops in the fall more carefully and anything that looks a little shoddy or old I should probably try and shore up and repair then to avoid these kind of issues um honestly I think this is the coldest winter we've had since I've come to Ohio and the freezing temperatures are making everything so much harder it's just even small things like under the gate in the fence I had put down wooden uh boards and some paving stones because I have um my property gets very wet in the fall and the spring and I didn't want to keep on walking through the mud there so I put those down well now the ground has frozen so much that it's pushed those paving stones and the wood up and they were catching on the gate so I couldn't get the gate to open properly and then I couldn't get it to close properly so I thought okay I'll dig up the wooden boards and I naively went out there with like a little hand shovel that broke in half like literally the metal just snapped in half so I went I got the big shovel and I've been digging and digging for ages before I could get everything up and it took me a long time to sort that and then I had the same problem out with the run doors the ground around them has been pushed up by the um, the ice and the snow and I've had to dig through that so I could open the doors without the door sticking get them to close properly it's it's honestly just been a nightmare and it's constant you know just when I think I fixed one problem here's another problem because of the ice and the snow so yeah I'm not having the best time right now (laughs) but uh I'm hanging in there on a positive note well this is a funny aside um I was I just come in for chores so I'm wearing I have a jacket that I wear when I'm dealing with the chickens one's for winter and one's for spring and this is my winter one obviously and I'm talking to my husband about something and I'm wandering around because I'm in the middle of of getting things sorted for the um the sick chicken and I put my hand in my pocket and and mid-sentence I just stopped and went oh there's an egg in my pocket and for whatever reason Henry my husband found that hilarious and he just absolutely cracked up about it and um made me promise that I would mention it today (laughs) so I have in other positive news um 
have you guys heard of something called chip drop? This is for my American listeners. So the website, and I'll put it in the episode description, is called getchipdrop, all one word, dot com. And the premise of this site, which I really, really love, is that you can get free wood chips from um, tree services and arborists in your area. So often when people come out and they chop down trees or whatever, they will um, mulch it down into wood chips. But a number of places don't have a use for those wood chips. So not all tree services create mulch, basically. And so this website connects people who want the wood chips with their local tree service people. Now, I originally signed up for this website probably two years ago in the spring. I had no bites on it and I eventually cancelled my request. Well, it just came to me suddenly that this would actually be the perfect time to ask for a chip drop because winter is when a lot of work is done in this area on trees. We sadly do have oak blight and it's safest to remove trees with oak blight in the winter because the fungal infection cannot be transmitted in this kind of temperature. And also because there's been a lot of storm damage with trees coming down. So there's been a lot more people out and about removing down trees. So I put back in my request for receiving free wood chips. And as well, I said, you know, some branches or whatever in there is fine. And within two days, I had someone connected through the website and I now have this ginormous, beautiful, fragrant pile of wood chips on my front lawn, which I'm so excited about because I don't need to buy wood mulch now. I have these wood chips. They can work just as well. And this is the year that I really needed to order a big delivery of topsoil because I've used up all the topsoil that was here on the property in the um where all the leaves were piled up and as they broke down, they turned into beautiful topsoil. Well, I've kind of used it all. So I had to place an order. So now I can just take the money that I pay every year for mulch and put it towards topsoil. So this was amazing. The guy who dropped off the wood chips was super nice. And I'm just absolutely thrilled. So, um, like a weirdo, I went out there and I was like scooping up handfuls of it and sniffing it because it smells so good. And I'm so excited for spring when I can start like putting it out on the garden. So that was really, really good. Um, in less positive news. So my Whippet Chappie, which if you follow me on Instagram, you've seen pictures of him. He's my adventure Whippet. He's the dog I take out on long hikes because my girls don't like them as much. Uh, he is a dirty little poop eater. Now, if you have dogs, you might have dealt with this problem before. Some dogs eat their own poop. Some dogs are good about not eating theirs, but can't resist like cat poo. Some dogs want horse poo. It's just kind of an issue. And I think as homesteaders, we're particularly prone to it because we have all these different animals with different poo and dogs get intrigued. Well, Chappie's always been a poop eater because he basically ran wild before we got him and he ate kind of whatever there was and some of that was feces and once a dog gets in the habit of eating feces it's really hard to get them out of it so on and off over the years particularly in winter he loves 
<laughs> he loves the poo when it's frozen. We call them poopsicles. Um, he would eat some, but it's never been as bad as it has been lately. And part of that is is because we had put him on a diet and he actually lost way more weight than we anticipated. So we had to then start feeding him up again. And also, and this probably attributed to why he lost so much weight, he has pinworms. I mean, he was diagnosed with them in late summer and we have been treating him for them, but pinworms are notoriously hard to get rid of and it can increase fecal eating in dogs because that's how the pinworm carries on its life cycle. So like a lot of parasites can kind of affect behavior in some ways. This can lead to more eating of foreign objects, including feces. And he's been so bad about it that I've been like outside two to four times a day scooping poo, trying to get every little crumb because I'm so sick of it. And I, if I see him doing it, I will be yelling at him from the deck and he'll like, he'll look at me and then you can see it in his head. He's trying to figure out, well, I'm X amount of distance away. How much poo can he eat before I get to him? It's it's bad. So finally, what we ended up doing, I have finally relented and I've put them on some of those pills that are supposed to stop them from eating poo. All the dogs are on it because he'll eat any of the dog's poo. And they all seem to have about a 50-50 chance of working. But at this point, I'll take it. But the other day, I put on his sister's racing muzzle. So that's like a basket muzzle where dogs can still move their mouth freely, but they can't nip at each other. And more importantly, he can't get poo through it. And I put it on him and sent him out because it's nighttime where he's the worst. If if the dogs went after dark, I can't see it. And so he finds it. And the night that we did this, I turned to my husband and I said, oh, ha ha, wouldn't it be funny if he came back and the muzzles just covered in poo? Ha 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 ha. Yeah, he comes back and he's mushed snow and poo all over that muzzle and all over his face. And I was so upset. (laughs) So cleaned that. Not the perfect plan. But on the plus side, I don't think he got much poo through it. Um... And guys, Chappie's my favourite. I know you're not supposed to have favourites, but he is my little beloved baby. And to have him be such a naughty boy is driving me nuts and has definitely been adding to my stress because I don't want to be out in my garden picking up poo four times a day in like sub-zero temperatures. But here we are. So wish me luck. I really hope those pills work. Um, And... Uh, Fingers crossed that he'll stop being a dirty little um, poo eater. In other random news, I swear I will get on with things, but actually (laughs) I have a number of updates this episode, which makes a change. Uh, The lot next to our house has gone up for sale and I'm super nervous about someone buying it and building on it. It's just over an acre And it never occurred to me that if it did sell, because it's always been empty, um, it never occurred to me that someone would think about building a house there. Well, when I saw it go up for sale, I immediately looked it up. And it turns out, I I also reached out to my realtor because he's a really great guy and I knew he could find out some stuff for me. And basically it turns out that it actually sold last year and we kind of dodged a bullet because it sold last year 
for under 18,000. And the person who bought it planned to build on it. But he underestimated how hot the market is right now. So his house sold so fast that he was looking at renting while the new house was being built on the land. And he decided that he didn't want to do that. So he ended up buying a house and then now he just has this land that he doesn't need. Well, despite the fact that he doesn't need this land, he's put it on the market for over 12k more than he paid for it. And my realtor pulled up uh, lots in this neighborhood of around the same size, so just over an acre, and what they're selling for. And I have to be honest, I was very surprised to find out that what he paid for it, uh, which was about, I said it was under 18k, it was 17,500. That is the average price of an acre in my neighborhood right now. And that shocked the hell out of me because that has gone up dramatically since we bought, uh, what, three, four years ago now. And I knew that housing prices are on the rise. You know, I know that bizarrely the pandemic has actually made them go up even higher because, you know, we got a new tax assessment and our house has gone up a lot in value and all this kind of stuff. But that really shook me because, frankly, even if I could talk him down into selling it for what he paid, I just don't think it's worth it. The way it's sort of attached to our property um, doesn't make it super convenient for use. And the only use I'd really have for it right now would be I'd probably put garden beds on there, maybe some more beehives, but ultimately it would need to be fenced, um, you know, getting electric or water or anything out to it would be difficult. So I'm not sure it's worth the investment. But I had my realtor reach out and just be kind of try and get a feel for whether this guy will negotiate. Well, he's not going to. He doesn't need the land, but he's not going to negotiate on the price. So right now my plan is basically this. It's going to sit there. I'm going to see what the market does. It might not sell. It might sit there until he's desperate to get rid of it and then we can lowball. Or, you know, maybe someone will buy it and they will build. Our biggest concern is um, between our two lots are some fir trees and they're relatively old. I'd say they're minimum 30 years old and they're not in the best shape, but we're working on kind of, you know, Uh, making them healthier but what's really great about them is they provide a very good visual barrier between our property and that lot and they're also a really good wind break that for that whole side of our property and we're worried about who actually owns it because it's not quite clear the trees are either sitting directly on the boundary or they do belong more to one of us than the other so I've scheduled to have a certified surveyor out in the spring and he's going to come out and he's going to put permanent boundary markers in place for us so that we know exactly where our property line is and anyone who buys that lot potentially will then know exactly what's ours and what's theirs and hopefully we can avoid any problems because honestly if anyone bought that lot and cut all those trees down I'd be devastated Uh, A, because I don't really want to look at the back of someone's house and B, because there's a ton of bird's nests in there that I love to watch. I know crows have nested in there. We've got all kinds of songbirds in there. It would just be a freaking nightmare. So um, yeah, I'll update you as things progress. But uh, Christ, I mean, if we had like just... (sighs) 
if we had like the liquid assets to pay for it, it would be tempting just to not run the risk of anyone building on it. But let's be honest, that's not the best reason for making an investment. So on to less slightly boring news, I'm sure. Hive update and uh, don't have good news. (laughs) Well, I have mixed news. So on February the 12th, we had a mild afternoon. And by this, I mean that it was 30 degrees Fahrenheit. It was sunny and there was no wind. And I decided that this was probably going to be my last chance to get out to the hives and add more food because we had an extreme cold front moving in. And so I ran out there and I quickly discovered that my Saskatraz mother hive and the two nucleus colonies had perished. And it was very easy to see straight up that they had died from starvation. But here's the thing. They starved to death, but they did have food left. Now, what had happened, and I know we've talked about this a little bit before, is it's not just enough that the hive or the colony, I should say, has food in there. What's important is that the cluster remains in contact or close enough to the food. And what can easily happen is if a number of bees die off, maybe too many, say because of high varroa counts, which has depleted their fat stores or given them viruses that have shortened their life, the cluster can end up too far away from the food, whether it's their own honey or the feeder that you've put in place. And even though it could be like an inch away from them, if the temperature is cold enough that they cannot break the cluster they cannot access the food. And I think that's why they died. Now, I'm not really surprised that I lost them. Um, I've been really upfront about the fact that I've had a very hard time with Varroa and the Saskatraz mother hive and the nucleus colonies did not respond well to treatment at all. So they went into winter at a disadvantage. I had a lot of other problems with the nucleus colonies when you push them up against each other so they basically form a full-sized hive they're really supposed to sit flush against each other now one of my hive boxes was from a different company than the others and so I was never able to get them flush against each other I think that played a part particularly because it made wrapping them more difficult and I just think that these particular three colonies went in with a disadvantage. Now, maybe if we'd had a beautiful, mild winter, they could have done it. But as it stood, they're dead. Um, I did look for the queens. I found the Saskatraz mother queen. I've brought her in and I'm just kind of keeping her. I have a little collection of interesting insects and she's kept there. I couldn't find the queens from the nucleus colonies. And I ended up taking the hives apart, dumping the dead bees out for the birds to eat, removing the frames of honey. And I left um, the hive bodies with the empty frames out just to kind of, I'll deal with them in the spring. It's too difficult even with my little cart to really get through the snow with a lot of equipment. So that's going to wait. But I knew I didn't want the dead bodies sitting in there. Uh, Once spring hits and those bodies start to decompose, the smell is terrible. I didn't want it ruining the equipment. So I cleaned it up. Now, here's the thing, guys. My Saskatraz daughter hive had also been struggling because if you remember, my theory is that the Saskatraz genetics made them rob from other hives more, which meant they kept on bringing mites back. 
And I saw a similar with the Saskatraz daughter colony. So after finding the Saskatraz mother colony and the nucleus colonies dead, I checked the Saskatraz daughter colony next, knowing that it was the next sort of weaker one. And full disclosure, I opened things up. I saw a big, I mean, they're right on the feeder, but I saw a big healthy swarm and I legitimately burst into tears. So I was having a really hard afternoon and going into a hive expecting to see them dead and finding them just so alive and vibrant I kind of had a moment where I crouched down behind the hive and sort of sobbed a little bit (laughs) before getting my shit together and just packing in I have winter patties and fondant that I made and I just made sure I mean they already had quite a lot of food that they were on but I just made sure they have a lot more So that was great. And I was honestly elated. Like these are happy tears, guys. So then I went to uh, Queen Marker, my US Southern Queen from one of my original nukes when I started this uh, crazy hobby of beekeeping. They're still going strong. So more food for them. And then I went to my uh, Ohio genetic hives. And as always, (laughs) I open it up and they haven't touched the feeder. And there's always that feeling of like, oh my God, they're dead. But no, they're not. They're just low. They're the only hive that is still in the middle of their hive. They're in the middle box. They have not needed to come up into the top box. They are nowhere near the feeder. Well, I'm just not taking any chances. So I am packing stuff on that feeder and I accidentally knocked the hive and the noise that came up, that is a big, strong healthy cluster in there and they were telling me they were there and they were doing fantastically the smell that came out was beautiful this big waft of warm honey and bee musk and the wood from the hive and it was just like spring it was absolutely incredible so as of right now I have three colonies going well one going strong two hanging in there We have a big snowstorm coming tonight, but I am just desperately hoping they can make it through into the spring. And I'm going to make as many nukes from my Ohio queen as I can, because that lady, those genetics are stellar and I really need to propagate them. All right, so I want to actually do um, something else real quick before I get into the chapter. And so this is Gemma's Random Corner. And for this random corner, it is all about keeping bees inside. So this came up because my Canadian bestie mentioned to me that the temperatures in Saskatoon, which is where she actually lived for a long time, although now she's in Newfoundland, the temperatures for the past week and going into the next week are all minus 20 and minus 30 degrees celsius which is minus 18 to minus 35 fahrenheit and this absolutely blew my mind because i know there are a number of honeybee apiaries out there including the research team that worked on creating the saskatraz race of honeybees So my first thought was, how are they keeping bees alive in those extreme temperatures? And a quick search on Dr. Google gave me the answer. A lot of Canadian beekeepers bring their hives inside. Now, 
my mind immediately filled with images of bringing my hives into my warm basement, which would soon make all the bees active. And then they'd be looking for a way out and they'd probably come right up through the vents that are directly under my husband's desk. And you can imagine the hilarity that would ensue. Well, this isn't anything like what you do when you bring your hives indoors. And apparently Canadian beekeepers have actually been doing this for some time. Now, there's a couple of different ways to do it. And one is literally just making kind of um, a three-sided shed with a seat with um, with a lid or a ceiling and it mainly in that case is sort of acting more as a wind blocker than anything else because it's still open but the open front should be like southern facing to get the best um, sun exposure but really what I want to talk about today is actually bringing the hives into an enclosed building and this can be a shed or it can be something that kind of looks like a warehouse And if you bring your hives indoors, it can greatly increase their chance of survival. But it's pretty tricky to do. Not only do you need the right kind of building, but you might need to invest in some unexpected items to get optimal success. Now, the three most important elements to successfully overwintering hives that you have brought into a building are temperature, carbon dioxide monitoring slash ventilation and light. So to run through these, number one, temperature. The the goal of bringing the bees inside is not to make them warm because if you warm them up, they'll break the cluster, they'll start looking for food and they'll probably leave the building where they're instantly freeze to death in the cold outside temps. So instead, you want to maintain the internal building temperature just above freezing. This temperature ensures the bees remain clustered and dormant. They will still need to utilize their winter honey stores, but not as much as if they were combating like the very cold temperatures. Since as we know, bees will shiver in order to generate heat and the colder the temperature means the harder the bees have to work at shivering to keep the center of their cluster warm. So in terms of the carbon dioxide monitoring and ventilation that I mentioned, bees produce carbon dioxide as part of their normal metabolism and respiration, much like us. And this can build up relatively quickly in an enclosed space. So you want to make sure that any building that holds your hives for a period of time has appropriate ventilation, but you also don't want it to be drafty. Now, there is some evidence that varroa mites are susceptible to carbon dioxide fatality at and will perish at lower levels than those that will kill honeybees. So as a result, some beekeepers that winter their hives indoors will monitor the COT levels in the bee sheds. So they basically allow it to build up to a level that is fatal to the mites, but not to the bees. And then they ventilate the building to allow the fresh air to come in. And they sort of repeat this process through the winter and this is sort of a varroa control method that can be an additional benefit to wintering hives inside and lastly light bee sheds are kept dark in order to prevent the queen from laying 
Now, bees apparently will still be able to navigate their cleansing flights in the dark, so you don't have to worry about that. It is recommended that you do inspect your hives occasionally, even if it's just to check their food. And of course, you'll need a light for that. So it's recommended to use a red light as bees cannot see this. And so you won't stimulate them. From what I've read, when you move the hives back outside during the spring, the sudden exposure to sunlight leads the queen to ramp up her egg production much more quickly. And some keepers have reported getting a better laying rate from their queens kept this way. So if you could meet the above conditions, as well as keeping this house or shed area clean and dry, your bees will have the benefit of getting through winter without added stress, heavy feeding, wind chill, potential moisture buildup or blockage from snow. So it's definitely something to think about for anyone keeping bees in the north where the winter can really, really drag on. I have to admit, I would be tempted to bring my hives into my shed However, my shed is a terrible, leaky, drippy mess, so I'm not sure that's going to happen anytime soon. And I'm also kind of hoping, 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 I can't talk today, hoping that this kind of really rough winter that we're having is an anomaly and is not going to be the norm. Please, climate change, don't screw me on this. (laughs) I am desperately trying to keep my bees alive. All right, so I've blathered on enough enough here. Thank you for sticking with me. And now we're going to move into the meat of today's episode, chapter five of Honeybee Democracy by Thomas Seeley. And this chapter is entitled Agreement on Best Sight. And it starts with a nice little quote, love quarrels oft in pleasing concord end. That's by John Miller from Samson Agonistes, 1671. When scout bees reach a consensus, have they chosen the best possible nest site? Well, Thomas Seeley says that they have, and this chapter digs deeper into this question and answer. Humans use a number of different tools to make decisions, often relying on simplified methods of choice called heuristics. And these generally involve reducing the alternatives that are available for consideration. For instance, when looking for an apartment, one could limit the options by searching based on length of commute, price of rent, whether pets were allowed, etc. If you were pressed for time and you needed to find an apartment ASAP, you could narrow your search by deciding on a series of acceptable but not necessarily optimal factors and then take the first apartment that happens to meet all of those factors. Neither of these decision-making methods guarantee the best result, but they do assist in making the final decision to an acceptable level of personal comfort. In contrast, honeybees don't make decisions like this. We now know that scout bees consider at least six attributes when looking at sites, cavity volume, entrance height, entrance size, etc., and will seek out multiple locations for consideration. Martin Lindauer's full-size swarms reported an average of 24 sites, a range of 13 to 34, and Celia and Berman's smaller swarms averaged 10 sites, from 5 to 13 was the range there. 
to quote Seely, thus a honeybee swarm pursues an unusually sophisticated strategy of decision making, one that involves nearly all of the information relevant to the problem of choosing the best place to build its new nest. And how do they do this? Well, it's all due to their democratic decision-making process. The next section is called Best of N. To determine whether Scout Bees reached an agreement on the best available site presented, Seeley realised that he needed to set up a Best of N study. This would involve offering a swarm a selection of artificial nest sites that all differed somehow in quality, which in turn would mean conducting the study somewhere with no natural nest sites to ensure that the scouts would focus on the offered nest boxes only. The goal was to see whether scouts really do reach a consensus on the optimal location. And this idea was prompted by Seeley's realisation that many things might affect the decision-making process of a swarm. For instance, if the best nest site was introduced late in the process, would its supporters have a hard time recruiting bees who might already be supporting another site? Or if presented early, could it lose status if the bees don't transmit its true quality somehow? What if it's harder to find, making recruiting other bees a challenge because they might have difficulty following the directions to the site? To test the bees' decision-making skills, Seeley would conduct a series of controlled experiments. This section is called Mediocrity in 15 Litres. In the summer of 1997, Seeley returned to Appledore Island, which is located in the Gulf of Maine. And we've mentioned it earlier. His first goal was to create an artificial nest site that would be considered acceptable, but not ideal to the bees. He would present swarms with five nest boxes, four acceptable and one ideal, to determine whether the swarms had optimal decision-making abilities. For his previous studies in the 1970s, Seeley knew that bees prefer nest cavities of a larger volume, uh, around 40 litres, and a small entrance, 15 square centimetres. So he decided to create a nest box that he could alter the volume of as well as adjust the entrance size. Each box had a volume of 40 litres, but were fitted with a movable inner wall to reduce the volume to 20, 15 or 10 litres. He also could reduce the entrance with entrance reducers. The nest boxes were only to differ in cavity volume and entrance size, so to avoid external influences, all were placed inside an open-sided shelter and all of those shelters faced the same direction and had identical exposure to wind, sun and rain. So basically he's trying to prevent outside environmental influences from affecting the experiment. He wants to be able to say that all the boxes are exposed to the same amount of sun, wind and rain and the only difference between them is going to be the cavity volume and or the entrance size. In early August of 1997, Seeley and his research assistant, which was his 13-year-old nephew, Ethan Wolfson Seeley, which is an awesome last name, took five nest boxes, five shelters, the swarm stand used to record bee dancers and three hives of bees to Appledore Island. 
Within a few days of arrival, they had set up an artificial swarm on the porch of one of the Shoals Marine Laboratory buildings and had placed two nest boxes on the north half of the island. Both sites, Site A and Site B, were 250 metres or 820 feet from the swarm, but oriented in slightly different directions. In order to attract the scouts, both boxes were originally set up with a large volume cavity of 40 litres and a small entrance of 15 square centimetres. Seeley did initially have concerns that, due to how the island buildings had increased since his last visit, other nest sites would attract and distract the bees. To deal with this, Seeley identified rogue dancers, bees on the swarm that danced for unknown locations. Once spotted, these dancers were swiftly removed and euthanized by freezing. If these dancers for rogue sites were not removed, they could quickly gain an enthusiastic following and would disrupt the experiment. Twice when this occurred, Celia and his nephew were able to determine the location of the sites. One was a space beneath a pile of old boards and one was a small cave in a stone wall. Seeley was able to stop all interest in these locations by basically opening up the spaces, effectively removing the cavity. One time, however, they were unable to locate an advertised location as it appeared to be somewhere deep within a tangle of poison ivy. As a result, they had to end the experiment with that swarm and try again with a new set of bees. But thankfully, overall, the majority of the bees in this study focused on the nest boxes provided. So looking at the option of volume versus entrance size, Seeley first focused on entrance size. And he believed that enlarging the entrance size would make a nest box mediocre but acceptable. However, he soon learned that a large entrance actually caused a steep decline in interest from the scout bees. When offered a nest box with a volume of 40 litres and an entrance of 15 centimetres square, the scout bees showed great interest with an increasing number of scout bees investigating the nest over time. On August 10th, after one such box had been discovered by scouts, at approximately 1pm, was when the first scout bees discovered it. And by 2.30 p.m., just one and a half hours later, 10 more bees showed up to express interest. Seely then enlarged the entrance from 15 centimeters square to 60 centimeters square at 2.30 p.m. And the number of bees plummeted until just one to two remained by 3 p.m. So within 30 minutes, all interest plummeted to just one or two bees. Seeley then reduced the entrance back to 15 square centimetres at 3pm and the number of scout bees increased to 12 bees by 4.30. Once again, Seeley enlarged the entrance back to 60 square centimetres and by 6pm only one lonely scout bee remained at the site. Seeley repeated this experiment the following day uh, but this time he enlarged the entrance to 30 square centimetres to see if this size would be acceptable to the bees. But again, they lost interest. To quote Seeley, 
These results, confirmed by those obtained from a second swarm a few days later, taught us that scout bees judge a nest box with a 30 or 60 centimetre square entrance to be a low quality, probably even unacceptable home site. Next, Seely and his nephew attempted to create a medium quality nest box by reducing the cavity volume below 40 litres. On August 13th, this trial started well, with scout bees discovering both nest boxes later in the day. The next morning, Seely kept one box at 40 litres and reduced the volume of the other box to 15 litres, but he kept the entrance of both at 15 centimetres square. The number of scout bees to the larger 40 litre box increased steadily until reaching a total of nine bees by the early afternoon. The 15 litre box, meanwhile, attracted just one to two bees. Although it was clear that the scout bees were treating the larger box as a high quality site, could it be said that they viewed the smaller box as medium quality, one that is not highly desirable, but still acceptable? To test this, Seely enlarged the opening of the 40 litre box to 60 centimetres square at 12.30pm and waited to see if interest would increase for the 15 litre box, and it did. The number of scouts at the 40 litre box with the now enlarged entrance decreased, while the 15 litre box, which still had the 15 centimetre square entrance, now had a high level of interest. In fact, at 1.28pm, the swarm took flight towards the 15 litre box. To Seely, this demonstrated that a 15 litre nest box with a 15 centimetre square entrance is a mediocre but acceptable home site for honeybees. Two additional trials were conducted with similar results. When presented with two nest boxes with differing volumes, scout bees would build up strongly for the 40 litre box and much stronger than one that was smaller when both had a 15 centimetre square entrance. But if the 40 litre box's entrance size increased above 15 centimetre square, the bees would switch their focus and favour the 15 litre box. This next section is called Window on a Bee's Mind. To quote Seely, Further evidence that we had found the right formula for creating a mediocre but acceptable home site came from observations made at the swarm cluster rather than at the nest boxes. So at the cluster, Seely was able to identify which site the bees danced for based on the angle of their waggle run, as each site was carefully positioned so that their directions differed by exactly 30 degrees. Considering what is known about a forager's waggle dance, Seely thought the rules that apply to desirability of a food source and the ensuing dance would also apply to nest site desirability. So a forager bee reporting on a bountiful food source will perform a strong dance of as many as 100 dance circuits that last for about 200 seconds versus a weak dance of just 10 dance circuits lasting 20 seconds for a poor food source. We can see then how the desirability of a food source correlates to dance strength and time, which provides a window into a bee's mind. 
to test this theory that nest site desirability could be seen via a bee's dance strength, Seely set up a video recorder to capture scout bees advertising for a 40 litre and 15 litre nest box. Both sites were advertised by scouts, which supports the idea that both are desirable. But the question here is how desirable? Seely found that the bees reporting the 40 litre box danced strongly with an average of 35 circuits that lasted for 85 seconds, whereas the 15 litre box was advertised with weaker dances consisting of an average of 14 circuits that lasted 45 seconds. This supports the previous study's findings that bees consider a 15 litre box to be an acceptable but mediocre nest site. Acceptability here is determined by the scouts advertising the box's location, because if it's not acceptable, they wouldn't be advertising. And the mediocrity is evidenced by the weak dances, i.e. the bees aren't thrilled, but they take it. This next section is called Critical Experiment. Seeley's time on Appledore Island during August 1997 had led to him learning how to fine-tune his experimental nest boxes for his primary experiment, offering a swarm the choice of five nest boxes, four of them fixer-uppers, and one of them a dream home. Sadly, Seeley had to postpone this experiment to the following summer, 1998, due to his teaching commitments at Cornell. When he returned to the island in June of 1998, he brought with him Susanna Berman, who was previously mentioned. The pair set up five nest boxes in a fan-shaped position, at least 15 degrees apart, on the east side of the island, approximately 250 metres from the swarm. Each trial began by arranging the boxes so that only one offered a 40 litre volume, while the others were modified to 15 litres. They then mounted the swarm on the swarm stand and waited for the scout bees to mobilise. Once scout bees began to appear, one person monitored the dancers at the cluster, removing any scouts who danced for sites other than the supplied boxes, aka rogue sites, while the other checked the nest boxes every 30 minutes for scout bees. Five trials of the experiment were completed in total, with a new swarm used each time, and with a different box presented as the ideal 40 litres. And the different box was, um, they would basically adjust the volume settings as opposed to saying this box is 40 litres and I'm just going to move it to a new location each time. And as a side note, I think it's important that Celie mentioned this because it sort of rules out anything about one particular box being the most appealing regardless of volume. So let's say, for instance, that you had a 40 litre box that you just moved around. Well, how could we say that that 40 litre box hadn't just become so imbued with the um, pheromones that the bees, the scout bees let out when they find a box that they like? So by just choosing random boxes for each experiment and adjusting it to make it 40 litres, they rule out such issues as that, basically. So the results of all these experiments showed that all or nearly all five nest boxes were discovered in all five trials, indicating that the swarm had full knowledge of the available sites. The bees did not discover the sites simultaneously, though all were found in one day. 
Most critically, the excellent nest box was never found first. This is noteworthy because it means that due to this timing, the best site starts out behind in the race for support. And yet in four of the five trials, it still became the top choice. To quote Seeley, the five swarms did not achieve a perfect five for five score in this choice test, but they did demonstrate impressive skill in decision making. Well, how do we know that this result, four out of five, is due to decision making and not pure chance? Well, it's all coming back to the mathematics. (laughs) So Seeley notes that If the swarm had chosen completely at random from the five options presented, then the probability of choosing the best site in four out of five trials is a mere 0.0064, which is 0.64%, so not even 1%. To put this another way, to get a four out of five outcome purely by chance, one would need to repeat the experiment 156 times to get this result because one divided by 156 equals 0.0064. To quote Seeley again, it is clear therefore that compared to relying on chance, the democratic decision-making process found in a honeybee swarm greatly increases a swarm's likelihood of selecting for its future home from the best candidate sites located by the intrepid scout bees. Trial four of this best of five choice test was the one that chose a mediocre site. Why? Well, for some unknown reason, the two scout bees that discovered the ideal site did not waggle dance to advertise for it. As a result, this site was overlooked by the swarm and attention ended up focusing on one of the mediocre sites. And so we can see then how important it is to success that all acceptable options are reported by the scout bees. To quote Seeley, In the next chapter, we will see that the bees have a nifty rule of house hunting behaviour that normally results in every respectable housing option found by a swarm scout bees getting included in their debate. This next section is called Swarm Knows Best. When considering why honeybees might prefer a 40 litre nest volume over a nest of 15 litres, it's normal to assume that natural selection has led to this preference, as a larger cavity means a larger store of honey to get the bees through the cold winter months. In other words, the 40 litre cavity offers a greater chance of survival, since studies have shown repeatedly that winter starvation is a major cause of colony death, especially with newly established colonies. Further support for this comes from studies of other animals, including mammals and reptiles, where studies have shown that nest site preference has increased survival chance and therefore reproductive success. But to really test this, Seeley decided to set up an experiment that allowed him to compare the survival chances of bees living in a nest that embodies their preferences versus one that doesn't. He started his experiment in 2002, installing artificial swarms in two groups of differing sized hives in the spring. He then left them alone over the summer and then noted whether the colonies had different rates of survivability through the following winter. Each swarm contained around 
10,000 bees, typical size of a natural swarm. And Seeley chose hives that contained five or 15 rectangular wooden frames like those used in Langstroth hives. Five frames is roughly equal to the amount of comb that can be built in a 15 litre volume cavity, while 15 frames is equal to the comb of a 40 litre volume cavity. Since a natural swarm is more likely to nest in an empty tree cavity with no existing comb, Seeley used empty frames in his test hives, alternating one completely empty frame with one that contained foundation only so that comb would be built straight and neatly. Each time he conducted this experiment, Seeley set up five colonies in each type of hive, so five colonies in five frame hives and five in 15 frame, 15 frame hives and he would establish these in early June and then followed them over the next 12 months to see which of them survived to the following spring. He replicated this experiment three times, uh, 2002 to 2003, 2003 to 2004 and then 2004 to 2005 so this was a total of 30 colonies used in all. Those colonies in the 15 frame hives had a winter survival rate of 0.73, which is 73% or 11 of 15 colonies. While those in the five frame hives had a dramatically lower survival rate of just 0.27 or 27%, in this case, four of 15 colonies. Now, the chance of such a large difference in colony survival between the two treatments is just 0.02% or 2%, sorry, which indicates that survival is not random and the size of the nest cavity has a direct effect on winter survival. Seeley weighed each colony's hive in June and then again in October and he found a big difference in average weight between the two groups. The 15 frame hives averaged a weight gain of 23 kilograms or 51 pounds versus just 10 kilograms or 22 pounds for the five, five frame hives. Now this weight consists primarily of honey so what we're looking at here is the weight of their winter food stores. Of those colonies that perished, an inspection found that the frames were completely empty of all food, indicating that the bees had starved to death. To quote Seeley, these stark statistics on colony survival as a function of high roominess are solid evidence that swarms really do know best about their housing needs, and in exercising their nest site preferences, they really do make good decisions. And that is the end of the chapter. Now, before I continue with my sign off and then my little personal updates that I do at the end now, I did want to say that one thing that I'm really interested in, and I don't feel is being fully answered yet, so I'm interested to see whether it's going to be answered later in the book, is why do the bees prefer a smaller liter cavity if the entrance size is smaller than the 40 liter cavity with the large entrance size and this interests me in particular because we've seen that honeybees will use propolis to make 
to like seal in gaps and cracks and will make entrances smaller. And since the entrance is something that they can make smaller using propolis, but they can't make a cavity bigger, it's really interesting to me that the 15 litre small cavity with the small entrance is of more interest to them than a big cavity with a larger entrance. I'm very, very baffled by this because I would have assumed that since they can change the size of the entrance, it wouldn't be this big of a deal. And I feel like because this chapter is focusing on Seeley's study where he's purposely trying to find a mediocre nest box, he doesn't really answer my question here because he doesn't really ask it he doesn't ask why they don't want a large entrance so I'm really really hoping that as we progress through the other half of this book that that's going to come up now I will say that when I mentioned it to my husband and I was just like I don't understand this the first thing that he said was well think about um oh what was it he's like think about ventilation think about wind exposure and so on and perhaps that's it like what if they don't have time to close up that entrance or what if just the sheer energy of using all that propolis to close that entrance isn't worth it the bees judge in their own sense that it's not worth it um and what if they can't do it successfully and then they have this big open entrance that could allow in water too much ventilation too much cold air maybe that is part of it but I am very fascinated to find out whether Celia actually answers this question or whether I'm going to have to start desperately googling it and going through all my books to try and find an answer so um, in two weeks I will be back to discuss chapter six we're really getting into the nitty-gritty now Um, I'm thoroughly enjoying this book a lot more than I anticipated you know coming from his book The Lives of Bees which is just so informative and so eye-opening I thought that this book would be fun but I didn't realize I would enjoy it this much so that's been really really positive and I can see why even people who aren't beekeepers have loved this book. So I hope you will join me in two weeks to continue on with Honeybee Democracy. This is the part of the podcast now where um, I'm going to just give a couple of personal updates. So if anyone is not interested in that, I would recommend stopping the podcast now. (laughs) And to you, I just say, you know, thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to check out my website. It will be in the episode description. And uh, I have all kinds of interesting stuff over there, which relates to what we discussed today. So I do recommend checking it out. And yep, I will be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. So for those of you sticking around, I just wanted to give a quick update on how I'm getting along personally. I've had some kind of aches and pains. I've had some more issues with my carpal tunnel causing issues. Uh, I think the fall that I had definitely made things worse and I'm still having some sort of numbness and tingling in, in that hand, which is making me drop a lot of things. So that combined with the cold is making me extremely clumsy outside. I've had some like elbow pain coming up out of the blue, which weirdly seems to be because my arm is bent a lot due to like reading and note taking and 
writing things up on the computer. Never had that before. So that's really interesting. Um, I would have thought if I was going to have an elbow issue, it would be from all the swimming that I used to do. But apparently it's from holding it in the same bent position all the time. So I've got, you know, I'm just sort of taking care of that and muddling along as best as I can. Trying not to feel like I'm falling apart, despite the fact that I am just 35 years old. Um, You know, mentally, I'm having a bit of a hard time. I think everything with the pandemic and the isolation and then my seasonal affective disorder kind of kicked in recently and I've just been struggling a little bit with my moods and I've had some like crying jags you know it's been a long time since I just cry for no reason that used to be how my depression kind of presented itself when I was younger but I haven't had that for a long time so that's been unpleasant But, you know, I'm just chugging along. I'm doing my self-care. I'm sticking with my schedules. You know, all the stuff that I've talked about before. The list of promises that I have made myself for the nice weather is definitely growing. So I know I mentioned previously that, like, I've made promises to myself, like, in the summer, after mowing the lawn, I'm going to sit in the sunshine and I'm going to drink a gluten-free beer. Well, now I make promises to myself, like, When things return to normal and it's safe to eat at restaurants again, I'm going to take my husband out on a date and we're both going to dress up fancy and we're going to spend quality time together. But also I've made closer promises. So in the spring, as soon as the ground thaws, I'm going to start working on that side bed with all the weeds and I'm going to start digging those suckers up and putting wildflower seeds down. I'm going to try my best to do a pumpkin patch. I'm going to walk my puppies more. Um, I promise that I'm going to sit out in the sun just for the sheer joy of feeling the sun on my face. I promised myself that I'm going to be using binoculars to look up in my trees to see if I might have any honeybees nesting in my trees. I really feel like the trees here would make great nests. So I am very interested in seeing if I can track any natural honeybee nests on my property or in the woods at the back so yep I'm just telling myself a lot of stuff to get myself through this winter as best as I can and um, we have more bad weather ahead we're in a snowstorm warning right now so I actually ran out and I got all my shopping done early so that we would be prepared if I can't leave the house tomorrow so yeah, it's it's a struggle, but I'm getting there. And I just wanted to give a little update and just again, reach out to my fellow sufferers, strugglers, survivors, whichever term you're more comfortable with and just say, you know, you guys, you're not alone. I'm right there with you. We're all muddling on as best we can. And I say it a lot, but I'm going to say it every time. It's okay if you are not okay. It's all right. You deserve to have your downtime. And it's not going to last forever. You know, I think when you have depression, it's really important to remember that when you're in the moment and you're sad or you're fearful or angry, depending on how it presents itself, it can feel like that's everything and that you've never felt anything else. But it's going to change. You'll feel different. You'll feel better. That's what I keep telling myself. I think I'm going to get there. (laughs) So, yeah, that's where I am. I'm struggling along. Um. I hope wherever you are, you're doing okay. I really hope you're doing better than me. And I super duper hope that your hives are all thriving, whether you're in 
I know our Australian listeners, you're in summer right now. So hopefully it's not too hot and you're, you've got a good nectar flow going. And for those of us in the US and England, you know, we're deep in winter. I hope you guys getting out okay. I hope you've got enough food out for your bees. I really hope all your colonies survive. You know, let me know how you're getting on. Um, I love getting comments from you guys over on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, or you can email me at homesteadhensandhoney at gmail.com. So guys, just take care of yourselves. I mean, that's all I can say really, and uh, wear your mask. And as always, hug your hens and then wash your hands. Thanks so much for listening. I will be back in two weeks. Bye-bye.